friends, I'm going to cough a little today. I do not bring a contagion to church. It's a long cough. Um, Please be patient with me. Our scripture today is from the letter of 1 John, and I'll be reading for you the very beginning until chapter 2, verse 11. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it, and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus the Son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar, and His word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must love as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. And this old command is the message that you have heard. And yet, I am writing you a new command. If the truth is the truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing already and true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. This is the word of the Lord. You know, after wrestling with Scripture and the Holy Spirit for a while, and then being gently and lovingly instructed by them, I so often seem to want to start a sermon with a confession Here's my confession for today. Around this time of year, I find that life gets really complicated. 
and that can be really challenging. My kids are getting into their schoolwork, and there's usually a quiz or a test to help them study for. Timothy, my husband, is a high school teacher, and his school year is well underway, and he has rehearsals after school most days. My own academic semester is fully launched, and I'm working on my first major assignments. Many ministries over at our other church, our other congregation, um, are getting you know, into the swing of things, just as they are here at Mountain View. And of course, this year, I am blessed to have the opportunity to work here 15 hours a week, to immerse myself in the stories of the people here at Mountain View. This is all good, good stuff, but it gets complicated. And on top of these things, there's the other stuff of life. Am I remembering to pray for Ukraine often enough? Who should we vote for for mayor in the city election in our town? And the list goes on and on. And I know it's not just me. Life can get really complicated at times, at any age and at any stage. Relationships are complicated. Communities are complicated. Faithfully following God is even complicated. Now, some of you, at this point, with that last statement, you may be furrowing or raising your eyebrows and thinking patiently, Oh, Jolene, following God is simple. Don't let yourself get distracted. If that's what you're thinking, don't get ahead of me, friends. Hold that thought and let me catch up to you. So I imagine that if faithfully following God was really simple, we wouldn't have over 200 Christian Protestant denominations here in North America alone, let alone the many thousands there are worldwide. Working out our God-given salvation with fear and trembling has been, historically, and often still is, complicated. And when I say historically, I mean as long as there has been a church. Even in the first century after Christ's ministry on earth, things were already getting complex for those trying to live faithfully together in his presence. Notice the way that John, or a disciple of his, it's hard to say, introduces this letter in his prologue. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim. This author is giving eyewitness testimony as if he was in court. He's saying, I have heard this, I have seen this, I have touched this, and I testify to it. He's using strongly persuasive language before saying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, was born, lived, was crucified, was resurrected by the Father, has removed our sins from us, and has given us, given the church, the Spirit of God as a guide and witness. Surely this wasn't a controversial stance in the early church, right? Well, it's complicated. You see, there were folks 
many of whom sounded like wise teachers at the time, who were getting so bogged down in the details of just how God did this gospel thing that they lost sight of the task of being grateful for it. Our author refers to them as those who are trying to lead you astray. These seemingly wise leaders went through theological gymnastics to see if they could find a gospel position that they understood better, one that they could wrap their minds around. You could even say that they were reaching into their own theology for salvation instead of thankfully receiving it from Christ. The theories they developed about Christ were called heresies by the church. But I don't think they started out saying, we want to be heretics. I think they took a wrong turn when they decided that they would crack the gospel code themselves. They would figure out this impossible truth of Christ being both God and human. And they would say, we understand this complex truth. With careful study, we have found the truth. Let's take a look at some of these heresies that were making the rounds in the first and second century church. Here's one. Christ only appears human. It's just God fooling our senses. He can do that. He's God. And so Christ is all God and not really human. Another heresy. Christ is <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> only human and not really God. Oh, we call him the son of God, but not like son, son, you know? He was kind of a super prophet, and then God adopted him as his son, but he was really the offspring of Joseph and Mary. Another potential heresy at the time. Okay, perhaps he was both, God and man, that works, but... I don't think that God can really be born of a human or suffer bodily death. So perhaps he wasn't God until he was baptized, and then God came into him, and then maybe God's spirit left him before he was tortured and crucified. In addition to these heresies, there was a philosophy at the time that was growing in popularity that would eventually turn in what we call Gnosticism. And that's that the spirit and the body are completely incompatible with one another. And these folks said, ah, we can't stomach the idea of a God-man with a physical body. Truly spiritual beings, they learn how to rise above their bodies, and their bodies become irrelevant. Whatever happens to a body cannot affect the spirit. And these folks they kind of went one of two directions, into extreme denial of the body, like starvation or beating themselves, or abandoning the flesh to sin because they thought it doesn't matter what I do with my body. It's not going to affect my soul. One final heresy to know about here. Some folks said, okay, the Christ is a human body, but it's full of only God. So that means he wouldn't have human emotions. He didn't face temptation. He would never be groggy before his coffee in the morning. He wouldn't forget to pick up something at the market. He would, yeah, his body was real, but it was like a vehicle for God roaming amongst humanity. So these are some of the heresies that our letter writer was up against when he pleaded, hey, we know this, 
because we have heard and seen and touched Christ. Believe us. These complicated and overworked ideas were nibbling at the community and distracting people from the awesome mystery of a God who came to us, lived with us, ate with us, suffered with us, died for us, and will forever join us on every journey we take. Later, in this short letter, having laid out his case for the truth of the gospel, the author speaks about love. Actually, that's a huge understatement. It would be more accurate to say that he goes on and on and on and on about love. Did you know that the word love appears over 50 times in five brief chapters of this letter? It's not a very long letter, and yet it's a complete love fest. Let me share a few snippets with you. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. Chapter 2, verse 10. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. 3.11. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's 1 John 3.16. And can I just take a moment, and I'm only interrupting myself, so the answer is yes, I can. Um, can I take a moment to say how beautifully I think John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16 go together? Listen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. When I read those together when I was writing this, I had to just stop for a minute. I had shivers. One more. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I'll leave it to you to find the other 40-some-odd mentions of love in this book. We have to move on. And so here is the structure of the letter of 1 John. A bit of prologue involving a plea for the readers to believe his testimony, a statement of the gospel and of our need for salvation, and then about half a dozen intense expositions on love and the life of faith. I wonder what's going on in the author's mind here. Our letter starts out with a painstakingly detailed account of our need for salvation and then launches into a love lecture. What's that about? <coughs> My apologies. Well, I think it was radical and new. In chapter 2, John says, I am not telling you a new commandment, and yet I am. Well, this wasn't a new commandment to anyone who had heard the gospel proclaimed before. Jesus himself 
said the greatest commandment was to love God. And the second greatest commandment was to love your neighbor. That wasn't new. But the community receiving this letter, like many in the Greco-Roman Empire, were struggling to wrap their minds around what this meant. You see, they lived in a world where the most important thing wasn't who you loved, but where your place was and staying in your place. The emperor ruled over all of the regions. Elites and patrons held sway over lesser citizens. Men ruled over their wives and children. Wives were permitted to rule over household slaves so long as they didn't move against their husbands or anyone above them. Community equaled hierarchy. That's just the way it was. The people above held the privileges of life and death over those below them. In short, it wasn't a loveless world. People experienced love and loving relationships. Pliny the Younger, uh, according to documents we still have, he describes um, being grateful for the love of his wife. And there are other documents that exist showing that there was love happening in marital relationships. But this was a different thing. By reminding the people of the church to love their brothers and sisters to the extent that they would lay down their lives for one another, our author is saying, you thought you knew your place, but you were wrong. You are the church. Your place is with one another. Full stop. You may live in a system that says otherwise, but you owe complete love to one another as an act of faith in God. But even so, why did our author hold up love as the apex of the life of faith, giving it more room on parchment than heresy even? Well, perhaps because as John says in his gospel, God so loved the world. Perhaps we know what love is because Christ laid down his life for us and we are to follow him. Because according to Christ, the second half of loving God with all your heart and mind and soul is loving your neighbors. The heretics were missing the mark here. It's not about what we think we know about God. It's about responding to God's love with our love for God and his people. And you know, the end result of each heresy I mentioned earlier was letting the believer off the hook when it came to loving. Because if God didn't love us enough to come in the flesh, then what do we really owe one another? And if God was only masquerading as human and never had to deal with cranky and confusing human emotions, then what good is his loving example? And if God didn't actually submit to death out of love, then how can we say that love is Jesus Christ laying down his life for us and that we should do the same for one another? And one more question. What does all this have to do with Thanksgiving? Because this is supposed to be the Thanksgiving sermon, right? 
Well, first of all, thank God Jesus has taken away our sin, freeing us to respond in love. And also, informed by the Spirit, the early church figured out something that psychologists are studying today, and that is the connection between gratitude and love. In the last decade, several large experiments have been done around the world to investigate the link between gratitude and love, at least in romantic relationships. These studies often take the form of a control group where a participant is asked to describe their love for their partner without any preamble, and an experimental group <coughs> where partners are asked to find a reason to express gratitude to their partners, the other participants, in the days before the interview. Researchers found that participants who received or expressed gratitude in the days before the interview reliably described their relationship in more glowingly loving terms. And these experiments have been complemented by chemical exploration on the links between gratitude and love. There's a hormone that's commonly called the love hormone. Those of you who were, have had children out here have probably heard about this before. It's called oxytocin, and this hormone is released when mothers nurse their children, and it's released when romantic partners snuggle or hug. It can be released in great quantities during some other activities that involve physical affection within a marriage. But these are all skin-to-skin -skin interactions that oxytocin seems to be involved in, this love hormone. However, scientists who study gratitude have recently used mouth swab analysis to prove that higher levels of oxytocin are released by an individual after one has recently done something that they are grateful for and, this is the important part, when they have verbally expressed their gratitude for their partner. Wow. The letter of First John was written just under 2,000 years ago. But our author did not need cutting-edge science to realize that gratitude prompts love. When we focus on our gratitude for the gifts of salvation and our fellowship with God and with one another, love grows in us. And it does this because we were carefully designed this way. And you know, I'm so thankful that we're designed this way. I will bear with my hectic schedule and responsibilities and all the questions I can't answer. I will try to weigh in to tricky theological questions that our denomination and others are facing. And I will pray for guidance from the Spirit as I spend time in Scripture discerning God's will. In all of these things, I will do my best, and I know you do as well. But at the end of the day, I read in 1 John the words, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. That's 4-7. And this, this Thanksgiving, I am more grateful for that simple invitation than I am for all of the theology I've absorbed in the past four years in seminary. 
So to those of you whose eyebrows raised or furrowed when I said faith was complicated, you're right. Though it can be complicated, it's also startlingly simple. Thanks be to God. I would love to pray for you. Dear Lord, thanks be to God. Help us to love one another. Help us to love your people well. Help us to love the world well because you so loved the world. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen.